Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Narcissist Podcast. I'm your host, the Mindful Narcissist, and we're back with another soulmate chat. She's basically just an honorary co-host at this point. This is like, what, the fourth time she's been on in the last few months? If you haven't already, I would listen to episode 35, Why I Left Buzzfeed, sorry, I meant the church, and episode 36, Organized Religious Spaces of a Variety of Flavors, first for a bit of context, but other than that, I have got nothing else to add. So here we go. So it is Wednesday, January 12th. It is, what, two weeks after I recorded my story and like a month and a half after you and I recorded. Yeah, that was November. So much closer to mine yeah. than yours, but this is phase one of an experiment. Yes. Slash documentation. Just about how these things change and can change. And yeah. you don't have to be shy about them changing. And yeah. Part of the process. Yeah. It's part of the process. And like, see, I have a history of like being scarred by change in this area being held against me, which I think is normal. Uh-huh. Like people coming from the community where you left. Mm-hmm. I think it's fairly normal that they would be like, no, but you believe this once. You said this once. How dare you? No longer. But this here, this is recording and proof that it changes and it's normal and it's fine. And we can embrace that because change is good. Yes. I think my ironically favorite, not favorite part of this entire process for me is that every time I go through one more iteration or change, I'm like, yes, this is where I'm at. And I feel very certain that I have finally reached it. And like two weeks later, I'm like, what was that even about? What? No, no, no. It is here. And I feel just as certain at that point as I did two weeks ago. And now I'm just at the point where I'm like, well, you're very certain about never, ever being certain at all. But we can rock with this. Like I listening back to the podcast that I did in November and like the way that I talked and like the confidence and like the narrative and like, here's where I'm at. This I'm like, who? You think what? What did you say? And I don't disagree with myself. But I so would not phrase it that way today. It was very entertaining to me when I was re-listening to that because it it just came out, I think, a week or so ago. And um, yeah, that was really entertaining to be a fly on the wall in my own, like listening to me talk about it because I've never, I've also never talked about it before Mm -hmm. in any kind of reasonable space. So I have a feeling that I'll be just as entertained by this recording when we're done with this as I was by that recording now, which is not great, but... That's the point of this experiment. See, I wish I had some core sort of record because like for me now, this process is what, seven years old. So I've got seven years of this processing that I didn't really record in any kind of way. Yeah. It's kind of hard for me to remember like the stages that I went through. I mean, I know vaguely that it was like leaving Mormonism, really strong atheist anti-church Mm-hmm. Then like weird spiritual period, like ooh, spiritual, you know? Mm-hmm. And now just where I am now, which is what I outlined in the podcast, where I'm just kind of like, you know what? I'm not attached to anything right now. And I'm just kind of like, I'm here. I'm in the moment and I do things that are good for me. Maybe that's where we should start this then is as best as you can remember the narrative from when you first encountered, like as a little kid, like first encountered spirituality that you remember 
and then the arc that that took through childhood and teenage and then the breaking point and the phases that went around that see if you remember things or just how you tell the story well you know <laughs> in childhood like it was always it was always just a thing that was there mm -hmm. i was very attached to concepts of the afterlife because of my brother and everything else just rode on that like it was attached to that so it was like it was a given like yes all those other things are true because this one thing has to be true right and most of my like spiritual experiences i feel like we're kind of just like you just get into that mentality when you're in that space it's what everybody else is doing you're a very impressionable kid i say you it's what everybody else was doing. I was a very impressionable kid. I was very vulnerable as well. And the narrative there very like served me in that vulnerable space. It was also rewarded. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So much rewarding for like performing well in that space. And I was really good at it. The same way that like, you know, I was really good at school. It's really good at testing well on things. And that was very positively reinforced. I was also very, very good at just being a little Mormon girl. And that was very strongly valid, validated, reinforced like this. You are good because you are good at this. And I think that was where all of my like, quote unquote, faith lie was with the desire for the whole afterlife thing to be true. And with the fact that I just received constant positive reinforcement that you're good at this thing, bravo. And that feels good when you're a child, obviously. And also I just, I learned how to speak the language, you know, like there's a language of spirituality and you, you learn it from hearing it and then you just kind of repeat it. And so, you know, I have journals full of me recording these spiritual experiences. But it's just like, it reminds me of going back and reading like early artist statements that I wrote or like essays analyzing artworks where really you're just regurgitating art speak that you heard elsewhere and you apply to your own work. I was just regurgitating spiritual speak that I heard elsewhere and applied to my own life and own narrative. So, but at the same time, that all felt very real in the moment, obviously. That all felt very genuine. It, I had many experiences of like, you know, crying because I was moved by the spirit, which really, looking back on it now, I think was just me being re-traumatized and like reliving the trauma of losing my little brother in public settings constantly. But, you know, I interpret them as spiritual experiences at the time. And, you know crying and stuff in public because you felt the spirit that was another thing that was very positively reinforced like yes have this show of vulnerability everybody you know everybody else gets stronger because you're showing you're crying and showing this vulnerability it helps the group um which i think it it does help the group that everybody being able to share those kinds of moments and i think just like the more i became a real person you know, like 15, 16, 17, when you really, really start strongly developing your own personality, that was just when all of that became less and less real. And I think, again, 
now, having moved past the strong labely type phases of me being out of Mormonism, I think once again, like right now, I would say I'm becoming more and more myself. And I think that is why once again, none of those labels feel true. Because I think as I was leaving the church, I was in kind of a more liminal space of not attaching myself to anything in specific. And I'm now returning kind of to that similar liminal space of in-between labels, etc. And what part of that arc would you say as you go from one version to the next changes the most? Hmm. I think just my level of attachment to things. Because it like it increases and decreases. I think that's the thing that changes the most. Yeah, is just like how attached I am to things and ideas. And as I cycle through it, the thing I keep coming back to, as I keep coming back to, I, I feel like I've gone through like two cycles of it, but both times it seems to come back to this just more detached space. My therapist once said I would make a very good Buddhist <laughs> because of that kind of detachment I'm able to hold and be comfortable with. And where do you think you developed the ability to do that? Because it definitely was not something that you were taught in that space. Like, how did you get there? I kind of think, because something I've experienced my whole life from the time my brother died, that's like a definitely a direct result of that trauma and like a coping mechanism is like pretty serious dissociation from like my body. A lot of my childhood memories, I remember more in a way of like, I was floating above myself watching it happen. And that I kind of think that my ability to have kind of detachment is the healthier progression of that. Like it's something I've experienced my whole life, but as I've like gone to therapy more, I no longer experience my life in a detached way, but I'm able to be detached from external things in a way that I do think is maybe not perfectly healthy still, but like increasingly healthy. Do you think... Because I, I know in a lot of these narratives, the the narrative or the story arc centers around the leaving, like the that progression process. Yeah. Um, because that generally doesn't happen all at once, though a lot of it happens internally before it's ever voiced to anyone. Do you want to narrate a little bit of what that part of that process looked like for you? And then how your relationship to that period of time has changed over time? The leaving period. Yeah, I think that was very, very long and drawn out, particularly because like mentally it started when I was still living in my parents' house and like a child and I wouldn't have really had much say. And so for nearly my whole senior year, I was very much just performing. Like I was aware it was a choice to just keep performing as I knew I needed to, to kind of just keep the peace with everybody because I understood that I was still a child and did not really have much of a say. And then even when I graduated, 
like I graduated at 17. There were a few months in college where I was still 17. And I think I was still kind of cautious then kind of tiptoeing around it. Cause I was like, mm, I have moved out. I am an independent person. I am like earning my own money now, but age is still a thing. Like I am legally a child. I was having to get permission slips signed by my parents in college. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I feel like I was still very much performing the way that I needed to until I was 18. And then even after that, it's only very recently that like in my online presence, I've kind of stopped performing in a certain way. Cause I mean, it wasn't like super public that I had left the church. See, there were, it was, it's not a formal thing. There was never like, she has left the church. It was just kind of a quiet walking away. I haven't been properly like excommunicated. I haven't gotten my name off the records. So for years, you know, like family friends and things that I would have grown up with, they didn't really know. And I moved away as well. So it's like, nobody really knew for sure what was going on. I think it was when I started showing my tattoos on social media. That was the first time it was like, okay, now this is a public sign to everybody that probably she has left, which at that point was something people probably suspected, had suspected for a while. But I feel like up until then, I was still like performing a bit. And even now, like there's still elements of like performance that I put on because of so many people that I grew up with in the church or because of family in the church. Like the fact that I don't swear on the podcast. You curate what you show for sure. Yeah. And it is like, and I'm, I'm aware that it, I do, I consciously curate that to still have a somewhat Mormon appropriate image. And that's changed and become less over the years, but I'm still not fully comfortable, like just throwing that aside. So I don't know, I guess like the leaving is kind of still happening because it definitely still has a bit of a hold on me in several ways, which of, I mean, with so many people that I love still in the church and so many ties, of course it does. That makes sense. Do you think you're at the place you want to be? And that's such a nebulous question. Like, because I already know the answer is there's probably still a long section of journey ahead of you before you're like, yeah, this is, this is it. But where are you hoping to go and how will you know, like, yeah, this is the spot to be or where you kind of feel peace? I would love, I think this place that I would like to be would be where like, not that I don't care what other people think, because I think that's kind of like an overrated idea. Like we live in community with other people. Of course, we're going to care what other people think to a degree, because when you live in a community, what other people think does matter to a degree. But I do think I still care a little bit too much. And so I think when I am really content and like truly confident and at peace with where I am, it'll be like, I, I won't care anymore. Maybe that will manifest in me swearing on the podcast. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the actual, I don't know how that will manifest in the way I behave or what will change or if anything will change. Maybe nothing will change, but just the motivation won't be a fear. It'll just be, this is just how I behave. There won't be something underlying there. Whereas like right now, there definitely currently is. Like it's something I'm consciously doing. What are the other elements of the narrative 
that you would want to make sure are included in kind of this initial space? I feel like so much about that whole journey has been like tied with like my quote unquote personal growth, which like you were saying, like when you look back at what we recorded about your kind of whole deconstruction and you sounded so sure and you look at it now and you're like, lols, (laughs) that's, that's very much how I feel looking at like my therapy journey to sum it up, which like, hasn't always been like with me in therapy, but kind of just like this healing figuring myself out journey. Cause like, yeah, at several points I've been so sure that I know what I'm doing and this is what's right for me. And I finally, like, I've made some massive realization. And then two months later, I'm like, what was I, what was I thinking? (laughs) Which I don't think that doesn't discredit the initial that doesn't discredit any massive realization. It's just like, yeah, that was a massive realization that was perfect for me at that time. And now I'm a different person or I'm in a different place. And this new realization is perfect for me at this time. I think of that now, like over, you know, the lockdowns and quitting my job and everything, going, you know, full-time in the arts and loving that so much. I think that was a massive breakthrough. I articulated a lot of things about my practice. I was like, I know what fulfilling work is. I'm finally doing it. And that felt hugely life-changing. And now where I am now, I look back at that and I'm like, okay, that was hugely life-changing, but still so much was wrong that I thought was really right. And I think it was, it was as right as it could be for that time because it was as right as I was prepared for. But now I'm like, you know, now I live a very, very slow, simple life. Kind of, well, slow for me still not really slow and it feels slow it feels it just (laughs) I mean this is I was you know driving home the other day and I like I started crying because I was like my life is so simple right now and it is beautiful and so that feels like another massive breakthrough that I'm like I've realized something huge that this simplicity is incredible and you know give it another year or two And I'll look back and be like, well, yeah, that was perfect for that time. That might be coming out of survival fight or flight kind of for the first time and not having that urgency and that stress underneath of like my survival depends on me being able to fill in the blank, which is how you lived for pretty much all of those years. See, but like when I got when I got the, you know, 10 grand bursary from the Arts Council at that point, I was like. I'm leaving fight or flight, like survive mode for the first time ever. But I, I don't think I really did. It, it was the closest I'd come. It was, yeah. it was the closest I'd come. You Definitely. know, now is the new closest I've come. Maybe still not fully there, but it's way closer. fully there right now. Yeah. This one embodied more sections of your life in one. Like you had to worry, you don't have to worry about housing and you don't have to worry about you know, a stable job and you don't have to worry about doing something that you hate. You don't have to worry about like transportation. And even when you got the 10 grand, there were still so many elements that you still did have to worry about that this is like another chunk off that fight or flight plate. And now, you know, and then it might go in layers until you get to a place where you're like, oh yeah, here we go. But every layer is going to feel new and fresh and delightful, which is new and fresh and delightful. Yeah. And like, that's the thing about growing I'll only ever have things figured out as much as they can be for that time. One of the critiques, I think, around religion as we've experienced it that I might be able to put language to that might speak to that is the critique of the obsession with future orientation. 
mm-hmm. in time. And so it's very realistic to me that a huge part of your healing journey is about being able to enjoy the present instead of the hyper fixation on the future and making sure we're doing everything right for the future and making sure. And like, again, not to use my favorite word, but there's always room for like stewardship and, you know, making good decisions and blah, blah, blah. But that's not what like was pre like, that's not what was presented to us as future orientation. It was very there, especially for you. And you had the entire afterlife section of that presented to you fairly constantly all the time. And so your whole life always had to be about what was going to happen after you died and the ability for it to be about now and for that to be okay mm-hmm. is a huge growth arc because there's definitely like where you're talking about still like, yeah, you know, there's still a, a little bit of an impact here and I'm still afraid to do certain things or present in a certain way or like, that's one of those things that could very easily be lingering. Mm -hmm. And so to see joy and contentment and peace around present day and a a focus on present day is really good. And like, that makes me happy for you because that is not how we were trained to think or problem solve or engage with the world at all. Man, when I finally go back and I do my artist residency at the Museum of Time in Ireland, that's when all this all this stuff about how we relate to time and future orientation etc cetera, etc cetera, that's when it's all gonna it's gonna come out full force oh yeah because i didn't realize until the language of that was presented to me in a podcast um i didn't have any like i couldn't i couldn't have defined that for myself but once i heard it i was like oh shit you know like that's a thing the whole like future oriented forward thinkingness is interesting because like the ability to do that is like a privilege yes but also it becomes so toxic yes it does like like both of the orientations have such opposite sides to them like the present orientation on the one hand you know is you being present mindful which good good things on the other hand is survival mode. I just have to make it through today. That's all I can think about because I don't know if I'm going to make it through today. And then future oriented is on one hand, a super anxious, horrible, terrible thing that doesn't let you enjoy the present at all. On the other hand means you do have the resources to not have to really worry about today. You can plan for the future and dream and fun things like that. And you know, balance in all things. Yes, I do like in my removal from that hyper future oriented mindset like i do still you know dream for the future i refuse to plan but <laughs> but like largely my refusal to plan comes out of optimism because i feel like good things will come and i don't need to labor to get them you know the track record's there like some people can say that and it's like, uh, you can say that and you have very clear things to point. Like you have a track record of this happening. And so it doesn't sound like bullshit when you say it. Yeah. No, like a very like reasonable evidence-based practice when, when you say it. Yeah. Good things happen. Love- good things come. And if I were to plan, I might miss out on the next really good thing anyway. So yeah. So that's like my relationship with the future. It's there and I think it will be good. Aside from the fact that, like, we're all going to die. We live in a capitalist, environmentalist nightmare. Yeah. Other than that, 
Yeah, other than the yeah. general nightmare state of the world, I'm very optimistic about yeah. the future. <laughs> and I think there's so much, especially in the way that it was presented to you, though I can definitely identify this in my own journey, where following certain religious practices, and they would never say this, but we both know this is true, was linked to, I need to have some feeling of control over my own life. If I pray enough, if I believe enough, if I repent enough, if I do this, if I do that, I will then like people wanted an if then statement approach to the future because there was so much fear about whatever it was and a lack of coping mechanisms, a lack of tools, a lack of you know, just bloop. And so there's also something powerful coming from the practices that we were taught in being able to say the things that you say about the future of like, I believe that things are going to come that are good. I believe we're going to be okay. I believe it's going to be, you know, like that willingness to give up control is remarkable coming from the level of fundamentalism that you experienced and the requirement of like clench so tightly to try to hold on to some scrap of control that we never really had but that we knew we had to like the discipline of it and the rigidity of it and the like wow we have to hold on and being able to let go enough to be like you know future's gonna be good and i'm gonna get there we're just gonna get there like that's actually you say it very casually, but getting to that place mentally, emotionally, and meaning it is remarkable. Do you know what's funny? That probably means that I am currently better embodying the whole, like, let God and let go, trust in God mentality very than much I so, yeah. ever could have as yeah, a religious uh-huh. person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually. Yeah. I think you probably have more faith than I do in a lot of ways. And um, yeah. I think in a lot of ways, I really do better embody like a Jesus, a true Jesus following person now than I ever I did agree. as a religious person. Because I am in way less judgmental mm-hmm. as a human being. I'm way more invested in like the well-being of my neighbors and yeah. much more community oriented, mm-hmm. much more trusting. I went to church from 18 to 25. I met you in that period of time and our whole friendship has happened in that period of time. When I go, what taught me to love others? Well, it was working with you and the things that you taught me and the way that you approach it. See other podcast. We talked about this. See other podcast. Who taught me how to be kind to myself and to prioritize, like not even to prioritize, but to allow what I wanted or needed or felt to even have room at the table was not religion just in case anybody's confused um or surprised that that was caitlin and not the church but like these very key fundamental things that are kind of like the hallmarks of what it should be to have like a really good relationship with jesus or a really good you know healthy understanding of spirituality i didn't learn those in religious spaces i learned those as you were navigating your own life and then the things that you taught me along the way and so i actually very much think that you embody i don't know I enjoy you more than I enjoy most uh, Christian people. And I've, I've learned more and challenged my understanding of how I needed to be to be a good Christian from you challenging me, not like you intentionally challenging me, but like just being around you challenging me in a good way than I ever did being challenged by a sermon or a church or a small group. And so I think there is so much, and this is just my general bone to pick right now with religious spaces is there so much talking and not enough doing like that's why i can't go back to a church right now i i can't like if i hear one more 
dumbass sermon that doesn't mean anything. I am going to flip every pew over and just set the, the shit on fire. I'm done. Like I'm done with, I'm done. It doesn't mean anything. You're not helping anyone. Like, why are you wasting it? Why is this the central point? Why is listening to a teaching the central point of the way that we structure religious space? Why is it not community? Why is it not service? Why is it not? And I mean, there's instruction is necessary, but there's so much more, not to quote another religious phrase about parenting. There's so much more that's caught than taught. I'm sure you've heard that one. And But it's so true, like in this way, where I learned more from just being around you than I ever did from anything you specifically went. And now I'm going to sit and tell you all of the things. Like that's not that's not how you transmitted these very important life altering things to me. Like it was just existing in the space with you. And so I very much think that you embody faith and peace and patience and kindness and generosity in ways that if it could be identified, like if it wasn't immediately disqualified because you aren't religious, would actually be such a talking point and such a, I don't know. Those are all the things that I like, the fruit of the spirit are actually most of the things I respect about you. Like patience, the carefulness with which you guard your tongue, not in the not cussing on the podcast, but in how carefully you approach issues or conversations or people or like you have more discipline around your tongue than, <laughs> sorry, I work with pastors and we have a phone line and that's just all I'm going to fucking say about that. <laughs> you took religion, stepped away from religion and decided that the piece of it you needed to keep, and I don't think you would describe this this way, and you can totally just be like, actually, that's all bullshit, is the mindfulness about the quality of your character. And you nurtured it. And most people beat it to death and try to force it into a bubble, and you nurtured it instead. And that's the difference. And that's why you're not weird. And that's why you're also not an asshole. Because you, <laughs> you said, I want to be a good person. Let me nurture myself to that place. Let me grow into that place and allow it to happen naturally which I very much think is the idea of discipleship or the idea of an ongoing relationship with Christ or what, you know, whatever wording you want to put around that. And so you left the church, did exactly that, got better results than most people in the church and everyone is now confused. And I think it's such a theological statement. Like you could definitely write a book on theology. You would hate every moment of doing it, but um, <laughs> you have a lot to say. When I go to divinity school, man, it'll be my thesis. Please do. See, you love me very well. And so I don't know that everybody would agree with this assessment of me that you have put forward. But, but I do I do enjoy hearing it from you. I think you and I are a very good example of, like we talked about in the episode about deconstruction, kind of the way that church creates bubbles and you're kind of encouraged to have friends that only like share your values, yeah. which in that context, again, keeps you in a bubble, but in yeah. theory is a good idea. And I think that you and I like bounced off each other in a way that brought out and amplified all of the best quote unquote Christian attributes in the other. I'll take that. I'll take that. Like, I don't know. We were like, ref I think we reflected it off of each other and yeah. it grew brighter. Cause I don't think I necessarily had all of those things without somebody to bounce them off of, you know, like yeah. they can't exist in isolation. No, they can't. And they can't. Like developing my character, so to say, is something I have actively tried to not do. Right. 
because, you know, I spent so much of my time focused on this personal progress right. and constantly trying to better myself. And yeah. I still have a very toxic relationship with those ideas. And so yeah. I, I actively try not to be a better person, you know, <laughs> I, or I actually try to not try to be a better person. Right. It just happens to me, you know? Um, <laughs> but I think it is because like, I have the fortune of surrounding myself with people like you where we want the same things yeah whether or not we're both articulating it and right. we're able to reflect it bounce it off amplify it figure things out Definitely. like you are very much a sounding board for me and have been throughout our whole relationship and like thank god you're good with words i'm not the greatest with words i kind of just see you praised me for a my, 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 my tongue, um, you know, and using it well. I think though, in, in terms of like figuring things out for myself, mm-hmm. my method is to just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Like I use a lot of words and I eventually get somewhere, but it's rambling for most of it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you have the gift of like, Hmm, I take in these things. Now I distill them. <laughs> and here's a nicely packaged and nice sounding version of it. And then you say that and I hear it and I'm like, ah, yes, language has been put to all of my things, which is funny because like when I work on grants and things with people, that's what I do for them, but I can't do yeah. it for myself. But that makes sense. We can never do these things. I can't do it for myself either. It's so interesting to realize how many ways we all actually think the same and just use different language. hundred percent. And like, you know, different different reasons behind thinking that way but like we're all just exactly the same we all have one big human brain (laughs) and we've just all developed different weird nuances in language to articulate what we're experiencing yeah that's my thought and that's one of my other major criticisms is the idea of like what did they call it they called it a mix of like uniqueness and Christian exceptionalism where we only want to listen to Christian music. We only want to read Christian books. We only want to interact with the versions that use the language that we use instead of having enough confidence in our understanding of the divine and whatever that looks like for us to be able to see reflections of the divine in a variety of places and people. Mm -hmm. And I feel like canonically, like in the gospels, the one thing that Jesus like did all the time was like go around and see reflections of the divine in people that everyone was like, him, Jesus, her, Jesus, like, really? Are you sure, Jesus? Like, that was like, that's like the point of like four books. That's the whole, that's the plot. Like, sorry, spoilers if you haven't read it. Like, that's the point. And so it's just so weird to me that like being able to see reflections of the divine in places that don't share our specific language in the way that we interact with the world is very not a thing and it's kind of frowned upon in a lot of ways um both explicitly and implicitly when really i think you could distill the whole damn book down to our job on earth is to see reflections of the divine in humanity in all of humanity and then to treat people accordingly Mm-hmm. But, like, that's very much not the version that I was presented with or that you were ever presented with. And, like, I feel like even though we both use wildly different language to express that, like, both of us operate under that paradigm in a way. That's my whole theory of what narcissism actually is to me. 
is exactly. perceiving the divine in all divine whatever that is yeah whatever that is isn't that the point of art i would argue that's actually that's a conversation i had recently with a few very religious people and they were talking about religious things i don't know and then i was just like yeah that's what i feel like i'm doing with my art i'm just trying to articulate some sort of spirituality trying to find something divine and that's all any religious person is doing and i agree i don't think they like totally agreed with me that it was the same thing but that's to be expected from probably stressed about religious people <laughs> thank you for coming along for another chat and as always thank you to my wonderful soulmate for joining me again um stay tuned for part two of this conversation next week you can sign up anytime before the end of the month if you want to get in on March's issue of the Mindful Narcissist zine. I'm continuing to explore writing and film photography right now with the zines, and I'm really happy with how they're turning out. You can also sign up to be a general patron if you just like the podcast and want to offer some support, but not receive a zine. Both tiers are €4.50 or US dollars and the link is patreon.com forward slash the Mindful Narcissist. You can follow me at CaitlinW for daily Mindful Narcissist content and reminders and announcements about the podcast. As always, like, share, review, all that good stuff, and my DMs are always open. See you next week for another chat. Mwah.